If you've ever been in a play or a drama on stage, you know that there are all sorts of things that can go wrong and probably do. You probably have several stories that you could tell if that's a part of your background. Well, one that amuses me is of one theater group that was doing a production of The Wizard of Oz. And in this particular production at one point, Dorothy is supposed to sort of lose Toto and then go looking for him or her. I'm not sure what Toto is exactly. But in this particular play, Toto was played by a stuffed animal. And so the scene comes and, and Dorothy's out on stage and she's looking for Toto and it was supposed to go about 10 seconds until she finds Toto and then, and then the scene goes on. So she's calling for Toto and, and the, the 10 seconds or so go by and, and she can't find Toto. And so now it's 20 seconds and, and 30 seconds and pretty soon it's a minute and she's just calling out, Toto, Toto, where are you? Here, boy, here, girl, whatever it is. Come here, come here, come here. And it took a full two minutes before the stage crew realized that they hadn't put Toto in the spot that Toto was supposed to be for Dorothy to find Toto. So all of a sudden, from off in the wings, you hear this deep male voice go, arf, arf. And out sliding across the stage comes Toto toward Dorothy's feet. A stuffed animal is what they used. A stuffed animal actually would have been something very good for Pathway to use a number of years ago at a Christmas production where the, the folks in charge thought it would be a great idea to use a live animal. It'll just seem that much more real. So out on stage walks this goat. Now, it was not the greatest of all time. In fact, this goat seemed to have stage fright because it no more than made it out onto the platform, and you know what's going to happen, right? And the goat does his business right back there. And if you ever wonder why I never go back there when I preach, now you know. <laughs> now you know I am not headed back there. All right, well, in dramas, there's, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong and do go wrong all the time. And actually today, we're going to take a look at another drama. And in the drama we're going to look at, we see some things that look like they're very much going wrong. And the place we find it is, no surprise, the Gospel of Mark. And chapter 14 is where we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today. Please open up your scripture journal to that spot or open up your Bible. And there's an outline there in the pathway notes for you as you find your way there. Welcome to everybody who's checking this out in different places online or maybe on the, in the classic venue or on the Moon campus. We're excited to be making our way along through this follow sermon series that we've been in for a number of months now, making our way verse by verse all the way through the Gospel of Mark. And we love to take a look at a passage of Scripture and understand what it says and then understand what that means for us today and how we might take and make application of that in our own lives. That's what we're going to be talking about and doing today. Now, last week, we saw the Last Supper. Jesus enjoyed that together with his disciples there in the upper room. And then they went out to a specific place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, that's a word that you've probably heard before if you've been in church any period of time. Maybe if you've never been in church, you've heard that word. And specifically, an area within Gethsemane is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where this is taking place, this circumstance, and this is where the drama happens. So we're just calling this message today the drama of Gethsemane. 
the drama of Gethsemane. Now, the location of where Gethsemane is is not far at all from the temple. It's not far at all from the city of Jerusalem. In fact, you can see it here on this little map. You've got the temple. You've got the whole city of Jerusalem. Then Gethsemane is just here, just across the Kidron Valley, maybe maybe as much as half a mile from the temple. This is where this location is, where these things that you've heard about in the Garden of Gethsemane are going to take place. This is all a part of this big hillside here, which is just a hillside filled with olive trees. Even today, it's the same thing. You can go and you can look at it for yourself. This is called the Mount of Olives because it's filled with olive trees. And that's where this drama is going to unfold for us here in our passage. Now, the city itself was far too crowded with people for anybody to have their own garden right there. And so what they did, usually maybe some of the more wealthy people, they would have gardens. They would have plots of land outside of the city, and they would go and they would enjoy it. And on this particular case, it is probably true that one of Jesus' followers had one of those plots. And so he borrows it from them, and he goes out and he enjoys it. And it's likely that he had actually done that previously as well. Now, don't think garden like flower garden or like vegetable garden where you're growing green beans and tomatoes and in my case, weeds. Don't think that, all right? This is just a a beautiful, serene spot. Looks maybe something a bit like this, where one could go out and they could just enjoy nature and get away from all of the crowds and all of the din of the city. So this drama is described for us in a few scenes, and through them we're going to see the final events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. We're going to see them sort of really get in motion here in this passage. And as we do, we're going to see the actions, we're going to see the reactions of some of the characters in this drama. So that's how we're going to approach this here. So scene number one deals with a very important individual. And uh, we will call it this for your outline. Scene one has to do with the distressed Savior. The distressed Savior. Now we see this first scene played out beginning in verse 32, and this is how the Savior is described. And they went out to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed, distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. As soon as it was clear that Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas recognizes that this is my opportunity. We've seen the last couple of weeks that he's looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Well, here we find out Jesus is going to be off just with a few other people. It's going to be dark. It's going to be late at night. And he could be arrested apart from the crowds that otherwise probably would have objected and rebelled during the day. So this is a prime opportunity, and Jesus knows what's going on. He knows he probably also has maybe a couple of hours for them to assemble the the, the group that's going to come out, the mob essentially, that's going to come out to arrest him. He knows he's just got a very short period of time. So it's interesting to discover and understand and look at what does Jesus do knowing that his time is so limited. And the thing that he does is pray. When the time is so limited, he knows he's right down to the end. He prays. 
And the reason that Jesus needs this prayer time so much is because of the burden of what he is about to do. He's about to be arrested. Not very long after that, he is going to be on the cross. And his anguish is so great that in Luke's gospel, remember Luke's the doctor, Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus actually was sweating drops of blood. This is actually a medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. It just means the sweating of drops of blood. And it's something that comes on a person or can come on a person who's under extreme anguish and extreme stress and extreme distress. And that's where Jesus is. And he asked the Father to remove this cup, this this dreaded circumstance from him. But the question that comes to our mind is, what is it about this cup that Jesus is dreading so much? And there are some different options here as to what this cup might happen to be. One thing we might wonder is, was it death? Is that what Jesus is so concerned about? Many people fear death. Woody Allen said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? We, we, we tend to fear death, right? Well, that's, that's, I don't think what Jesus is going through here. I don't think that's the thing that he is so concerned about though it is an excruciating way to die, painful, humiliating to be crucified. It's certainly something that many people would shrink back from, but I don't think that that's exactly what is going on here. I don't think that's the cup that he is dreading. He's certainly not cowardly. If he was, what he could have done is just said to Judas, yeah, we're going out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he could have gone somewhere else and hidden. He doesn't do that. He stays put right where he is. It's not death that Jesus is concerned about? Well, was it Satan, maybe, perhaps? There's nothing that Satan would have loved more than to defeat Jesus, because Satan, or Satan knows that Jesus' death on the cross is going to be his demise. So there's a temptation, perhaps, that Satan would be bringing against Jesus, but I don't think that that's the thing that Jesus is concerned about. Actually, Jesus goes to the cross proclaiming, now is the prince of this world cast out wasn't Satan. Well, was it perhaps sin? To imagine what Jesus is going to go through, this seems like a very strong possibility. Jesus is about to go to the cross to bear the weight of the sin of all mankind and to think of how abhorrent that sin has been for all ages, all mankind. Certainly, that is a very, very heavy weight. And I think that we're getting close here at this point. Enduring that punishment would be daunting, to be sure. It would intensify the agony, but I think there is still a little bit more here to understand if we're really going to get at the bottom of, of what this curse is, this cup is, that he is so dreading. And to get to it, what's troubling him, I think it comes into sharp relief if we actually fast forward a little bit to the cross. Because while Jesus is on the cross, he speaks seven times. Typically, that's referred to as the seven last words of Jesus. They're actually not just one word. They're they're phrases or little sentences that Jesus says. But he speaks seven times. And right in the middle is particularly poignant to see that Jesus there, the text describes for us, cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The anguish I believe that Jesus is feeling in the garden forming these or causing these drops of blood to form on his brow is the anticipation of being separated from the Father. 
The anticipation of being separated completely from the Father. Up until this point, Jesus has never been separated from the Father. Yes, Jesus came into the world, but he wasn't separated. They still had fellowship. Jesus is constantly praying. He's constantly having communication with the Father, but he anticipates a change in that circumstance. That's why prayer is this number one priority for him is because it maintains this communication and this connection to the Father. But now that he's facing the reality of what he is about to do on the cross, that he's going to be completely cut off from the Father, and that is daunting to say the least. That, I believe, is the cup that he is so much dreading in this context. Now, you might say, well, it doesn't seem that big of a deal, and for us it might not because we oftentimes choose to turn our back on Jesus. We choose to turn our back on God, and so the idea of being cut off doesn't capture us as deeply as it should because sometimes we just willingly take ourselves there to do our own thing. And far too often, we don't miss the, that fellowship and that union. So that's a piece of it, yet at the same time, we also need to acknowledge we've never been completely separated from God. You and I have never been cut off from God completely. Even when we have walked away from God, God has not walked away from us. And part of the beauty of what is happening here is that God is turning his back on Jesus so that he never has to turn his back on us. And we need to recognize just how phenomenal that is that that provision has been made for us. So we've never experienced this sort of separation that's being described here. We can't imagine how, how totally difficult and totally abhorrent hell is, which is the total separation from God. But Jesus understands it. And he knows when there is this absolute disconnect from God that that essentially is what hell is. That's the cup that he doesn't want to have to drink. That's the circumstance he does not want to have to live through. So Jesus prays he doesn't have to go through it. Not because he's a coward, but being cut off from God is a sentence unlike any other. And he knows it. And he dreads it. Yet even as he expresses his desire to avoid that separation, he understands the essential nature of it and the purpose behind it. And so says, yet, not what I will but what you will. Yes, Jesus is always seeking to live out the purposes of the Father. And so here, despite the agony, despite the cost, he says what you will is what I will do. Within hours, Jesus would be on the cross paying the price for our sin, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you separated yourself from me? Why have you turned your back on me? But that's exactly what was necessary for your sake and mine. Jesus had to endure this so that you and I could have hope, so that we could have life. Allow that to crash in on you. Allow that to raise in your mind and in your heart praise and adoration for all that God has done on your behalf.
The first scene in this drama of Gethsemane reveals the distressed Savior who isn't just anticipating suffering on the cross. He's experiencing suffering in the garden. It's in the garden that he steals his will to what he is going to do. Without Gethsemane, there would never be a Calvary because that's where Jesus sets his mind. But there's some people who are missing all of that. They're the central characters of scene two, which is this. It talks about the distracted disciples. As Mark goes on, we find that these disciples are so distracted, they're actually sleeping. And sleeping is not something that you want to do in this context or any similar sort of context. I was reading about one guy who, was actually, who actually fell asleep on his second day on the job. And so all of his co-workers, his new co-workers, snuck up behind him and they took a picture of him sleeping with them all standing around. Actually, you can see it right here. There it is. And then they posted that online and they had this Photoshop competition to see who could put him in the best situation Photoshop-wise. And there were hundreds and hundreds of submissions. One person put him in the Titanic. One person made him Mona Lisa. (laughs) One person added him to Mount Rushmore, right? You don't want to fall asleep at work And you don't want to in church either because if you do, we're going to gather around you and we're going to take a picture. Then we're going to post it online. And uh, who knows what will happen after that. All right. So no Photoshopping going on here with the disciples, but they were also, they were having trouble staying awake in the garden. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer, what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. In Jesus' time of need, the disciples did not come through for him. They didn't stay and keep watch as he asked them to do. What do they do? They sleep. They're asleep when Jesus asked them to do this. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had good intentions? You're like, I'm going to do that and then you never quite get it done? Have you ever left, walked away from church, and you're thinking, I have something I need to do. I've got something I need to work on, and here's what it is, and then you just kind of forget about it, or you just kind of set it aside. I've done that, and I'm guessing perhaps that has happened to you too. So what do you do? Well, after Jesus wakes the disciples up, he tells them to pray. Jesus himself, he's been off praying earnestly, drops of blood, So he invites them, he asks them, he pleads with them to pray. But here's the interesting thing. He doesn't tell them to pray for him. He tells them to pray for themselves. He tells them to pray for themselves. 
Because here's the thing. They are going to be facing some challenges and temptations that are very significant in the hours and in the days that are coming. In a very short time, they're going to flee from Jesus. They're going to desert him. Just a couple hours after that, they're going to see and know that Jesus has been crucified. They would perhaps start to doubt, maybe start to wonder, have we done the right thing to be following after this guy for three years? Because now he was here, now he's gone, he's been saying all this stuff, but now he's dead. They would have had fear. They would have had concern for themselves. They would have wondered what in the world is going on with all of this. So Jesus tells them to pray. Pray for yourselves, he says, so that you might be strengthened for that moment. But they don't pray. Instead, they sleep. And so when the moment of crisis arrives, when the moment of their trial arrives, they're not prepared and they fail. I have to wonder, what would have happened in the garden if the disciples had been praying? If they'd requested right before this, these moments unfold that God would strengthen them, that they would stand strong in the midst of all of what is coming, I have to wonder what would have happened. But they weren't going to have that chance. When Jesus comes back this third time, the betrayer has already arrived. They're going to have to face this situation ill-prepared. And friends, the truth is that we don't have unlimited opportunities. There are circumstances that are coming, and you're going to have to face them where you are with the level of preparation that you've already made. Don't be one of those people who is always going into those circumstances ill-prepared because you're just too cavalier about it or maybe you're just too lazy about it. And so you don't bother to do the preparation so that you're ready. It's like, I'll just kind of take it as it comes. And how often does that not go so well? And where might we have been if we had taken the opportunity to pray as we have opportunity now, but it won't last forever. So we're prepared when those circumstances come. If you've ever been caught up short, spiritually speaking, when a challenge has arrived, could it be that we haven't spent enough time preparing, strengthening ourselves through the power of Jesus? Scene two shows us how critical it is not to be a distracted disciple, but a prepared one. Scene three shows us why it's important, because in scene three, we see the deceitful betrayer. Back in Gethsemane, Jesus tells the disciples that the time of betrayal has come, verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. This is an act of treachery toward Jesus that is initiated with a kiss. 
Now, a kiss was a common greeting in those days, so it wouldn't have looked particularly out of the ordinary, but it is out of the ordinary because here comes Judas suggesting that there is a warmth as he provides this kiss when there's just nothing but coldness. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas kissed Jesus, but Judas just loved himself. There's no love here toward Jesus at all. And what about you? Have you ever kissed Jesus through some outward religious act? Or maybe through something that you have said that suggests you're in one place when really you're not there at all? When your heart is just turned toward yourself? That's betrayal. That's hypocrisy. Like it's talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about. And elsewhere, he adds this, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what Judas is doing. Well, following Judas' kiss, Jesus is arrested, which is when the impetuous Peter steps up. He woke up from his nap by now, and now he grabs a sword, and he cuts off this guy's ear. Now, John, if you're looking at Mark, say, well, it doesn't say that. If you look in John's account, that's where we learn that Peter's the guy who's brandishing this sword. And we also learn there that the guy's name who had his ear cut off is a guy named Malchus. Mark does tell us that he's the servant of the high priest. You know what that probably means? That probably means that he's the one who's leading this whole crowd out against Jesus to go and arrest him, to go and capture him. And he's the one, probably in the front, probably carrying this off, that Peter finds and cuts off his ear. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do to this guy who is out there leading the rebellion against him? He heals him. He heals him. Enemy number one. Reminding us again of the way that Jesus treated and loved even his enemies. And with that, Jesus is arrested. Jesus isn't making a run for it. He's not trying to get the disciples, let's fight. Doesn't do any of that. Why not? Well, if you notice in verse 49, it was done so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus wasn't some unfortunate soul who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is God carrying out his sovereign purposes. And Jesus knows that he is here for this moment. He's here for this hour. And he doesn't fight it. He allows it, submitting himself to the Father's will again, for your sake and mine. Jesus was prepared to drink this cup, and he just surrenders himself. They thought they were getting the upper hand on Jesus, and really they're just playing into God's hand all the way along. The prophets tell us that Jesus would suffer. They also tell us what the disciples would do. Last week, you may remember that we saw a Jesus quote from Zechariah chapter 13 that says this, strike the shepherd, strike Jesus, and the sheep, the disciples, will be scattered. Fast forward into our passage, verse 50, that we just saw, and there it says, 
and they all left him and fled. This is the fulfillment of this, as the scriptures always are fulfilled. And it brings up an interesting little point when we come to this epilogue of this drama, and it's this. It's all about the disrobed soldier. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon before where one of the points had disrobed in it, but this one does, and I think you'll see why. Verse 51 tells us about this young man. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Throughout the gospel, We have pointed out again and again that Peter was Mark's source for all of the eyewitness things that Mark includes in the gospel. Mark wasn't there for all of it. Peter was there. He was in the inner circle. He saw all of these things, and he is Mark's source, and Mark writes it down. We have to ask ourselves, what about here? Peter was sleeping, right? So who is it that sees Jesus agonizing there in the garden? And what about this guy? Who knew about him? Peter, at this point, he already fled. He's gone. So how does Mark know about this guy? And what happened as he ran off, leaving the bedsheet behind? Well, we can't say with 100% certainty, but there's a pretty decent likelihood that Mark is talking about himself that Mark is this one who was there in this moment at this time. That could be exactly how he got his information. Think about it. Mark is the only gospel that records this. None of the other gospels say a word about it. It's also been surmised by many that the Last Supper was held in Mark's family's home. Could it be that Mark was already there in his bed and he hears all the disciples leaving the upper room, grabs the bed sheet, follows them, so that he would have been there in this moment, clad as he was, then fleeing? Could that be the case? Could he have been the one who heard the Lord say, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? This could be Mark's way of saying, I was there. I was there. I saw this. It's not an uncommon thing for an author or for an artist to do that. There's a painting by a man named Michelangelo Caravaggio. It's painted in 1602. It's called The Taking of Christ. You can see it here. It's depicting the moment when Judas comes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. You can see them here in the foreground. Behind Jesus, you see another one that's thought to be John. What's he doing? He's fleeing the scene. He's running away as Jesus is being betrayed. On the other side, you can see some of the soldiers. Then if you look carefully, you can see one more. Man holding a lantern. Man who's very interested is an onlooker to see what's going on. It's pretty much confirmed as a belief that that is Caravaggio himself. He's painted himself into his own painting, 
essentially saying, yeah, I was there as an interested onlooker, but not as one who was going to do anything on behalf of Christ. In fact, probably fled. And that's essentially what's going on here with Mark in our gospel. It's what he's saying too. He was there, but he didn't do anything to aid Jesus. In fact, when the crisis was on, he fled. He ran away. Now it could also be, or could it also be, that we're not actually told who this is. There's no name given so that we don't just immediately assign it to them, but that we might wonder or put ourselves in that circumstance. Ask ourselves, could this be me? What would you have done if you had been there? Would you have fled as well? Or would you have stayed put and stayed strong for the Savior? I'd love to say that's what I do, but I, I got to believe that as you look at everybody else who flees the scene, that I probably would have been right there with them. And maybe you would have been also. But perhaps we don't even need to imagine what would I have done if I was there 2,000 years ago? Because you can just ask yourself, what did I do two weeks ago? What did I do two days ago? There's no shortage of opportunities that we have to stand strong for Christ to make our declaration, to make our stand. And oftentimes, it's right in the midst of something very much like what's going on in the, in the garden, where there's a lot of opposition. There are people who are coming against you. There are people who are expressing a view that is very different than yours. They're working antagonistically, in opposition. And we walk into those situations, and we walk into those settings with an opportunity to speak an opportunity to stand strong like the disciples had the chance and they didn't. What do you do in those circumstances? Do you sleep? Do you shrink back into the shadows? Do you flee? How do you respond when the opportunity is yours? You don't have to put yourself in the garden. Put yourself in your own situation. It's my prayer that we wouldn't be found sleeping, but that we would be prepared for that moment when it comes so that we're ready to stand, so that we're ready to speak, so that we don't flee because we're afraid of the opposition, but that we even embrace it and walk into it. Our world needs the testimony of godly people more now than ever before who can make the declaration that God is not archaic, that following him is not insignificant, but that it actually leads to purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy and life. We need people who are going to express that message because it's far too much under wraps today. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that's the message that you have 
to proclaim. So whenever you have the opportunity, remember the drama of Gethsemane. Remember what happened there. Watch all of the disciples flee and ask yourself, is that what I'm going to do? And instead, run, as it were, out onto center stage in the drama of your Gethsemane and speak and stand for your Lord and for your Savior. You're going to have that opportunity in this week that's to come, in the day that's to come. The question is, will you do it? For many of us, we don't, and we won't. And you know why you won't? It's because you're not prepared. It's because you haven't prayed for that moment. Lord, give me the opportunity and give me the courage to stand up in the midst of it and not flee and not run away but be faithful in responding to the opportunity. That's what we're called to. We can learn from the disciples and we can make a different choice and we do so to the glory of God. Don't shrink back. Step forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this drama that unfolds. There, there are different scenes, and we can picture ourselves in these scenes. We thank you for the fact that Jesus was so willing to embrace this cup. How difficult, how painful, how dreadful, how unprecedented it was for him. But he recognized what was accomplished or would be through it. And so he was ready to step forward. Lord, may it bring us angst and pain to think of all of what he was willing to do and to recognize how often we respond like the disciples and we run away, we shrink back, we hide in the shadows, we sleep. Lord, may we as a congregation say, no more. We're going to stand up. We're going to be the voice that speaks of the fact that God is not archaic. God is not irrelevant. But he means everything. Lord, we need that courage. We want to take center stage in this drama to lift you up, to declare the glory that is due to your name. Lord, give us the courage as we go from this place to be those people and live those lives. And we do it for your honor and for your glory. And we pray toward that end in the name of the one who drank this cup for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. I pray that we would have that courage, that we would have that boldness. I would love to hear 
of a circumstance where you step into it in this week to come. It would encourage my heart to know. So go with courage to be these people. If you would like to pray with somebody before you go, come on down. There'll be one of our prayer team here at the front who would love the chance to pray with you. Otherwise, thank you so much for coming and may the Lord bless you as you go.